May I speak in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, God the Lover, God the Beloved, and God the Love Sharer. Amen. I am again watching the TV series The West Wing. The action is set in the first term of a fictitious democratic presidential administration, and this multi-season series aired between 1999 and 2006. I'm still watching the episode in the first series, and what is so interesting is that it is possible to trace back the evolution of current political trends to a time when their outline is clear, yet their future trajectory has yet to be set in stone. Despite the program's clear liberal democratic bias, the West Wing portrays a time when politicians still believed in the importance of political consensus in the service of the best interests of the nation. Thirteen years later, the loss of belief in and the need for consensus on issues of vital importance has come to completely characterize the current political scene of governmental gridlock. And while this is interesting and instructional, it is not the point I want to draw your attention to. In one episode I was watching this last week, it concerned a request for the president to pardon a man who was awaiting execution on death row. And there is a particularly moving scene between Toby Ziegler, the White House Chief of Communications, and his rabbi. The rabbi had preached on the Sabbath sermon that the death penalty... Vengeance, he called it. The rabbi had preached that vengeance was not Jewish. And Toby points out to the rabbi that it is written in the Torah, an eye for an eye. And throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the Torah prescribes the death penalty for a large number of mostly religious offenses. The rabbi's reply is powerful. He says that maybe the Torah sanctioned death and that this represented the best teaching of that time. He tells Toby that later the rabbis who who compiled the Talmud, which is the collation of later rabbinic teaching went to great lengths to confine the meaning of the Torah texts to forms of reparation that did not require the death penalty. Jewish thought moved on as a result of a deepening over time of the human understanding of God's justice. Witnessing this exchange between Toby and his rabbi offers a reminder that in Judaism, unlike some branches of Christianity, the literal ferocity and violence present in many of the Old Testament texts 
cannot be applied in a timeless manner. Later Jewish thought moderates the violence and ferocity implicit in the passages of the Torah. And in our relationship to the Holy Scriptures, I am pleased to say that our own Anglican tradition of biblical interpretation follows this rabbinical tradition of evolving interpretation in response to social and cultural development. Social and cultural development is very often an indicator of our growing into an ever-deepening sense of God's truth, which Spiral Dynamics, which I mentioned in a few sermons ago, understands as the product of cultural and evolutionary development. You see, the argument that we have witnessed today in Luke 13, 10 to 17, turns on whether it is lawful or not for Jesus to heal the woman on the Sabbath. And if this is a story about physical healing, then the leader of the synagogue has a point. There are six other days of the week upon which this healing is more appropriately performed. However, this is a story not about the alleviation of physical suffering. Curing the woman's curvature of the spine is a byproduct of something more profound. Jesus performs a moral work of God which he sees as a fitting action for the Sabbath. He cites the exception that allows for animal welfare on the Sabbath. And turning to the synagogue leader, he says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be free from bondage on the Sabbath day? The weightier part of this woman's burden is not her physical deformity, but the burden of being morally and ritually unclean. And the patriarchal interpretation of the law places upon her and anyone else who suffers from disease or deformity the burden of moral impurity. And such an interpretation attributes disease and deformity to individual or familial sin. It's from this moral burden that Jesus releases her and claims in doing so that he is fulfilling God's word. God's command to keep the Sabbath as a holy day. And in his question, Jesus couches the woman's condition in terms of satanic binding. Now, we Episcopalians get really nervous when people start talking about satanic binding. So how do we attribute Jesus' reference to Satan here? You know, unfortunately... It's been true from the very origins of the church, and it is true today that at the popular level of Christian thinking, 
we are dominated by something called dualism. And dualism posits the notion that Satan is a celestial figure in opposition to God and that the world is a battleground between the war between the forces of God and the forces of Satan, a battle of good and evil. This has always been and remains a travesty of the Christian faith. This is not our Christian faith. Because our Christian faith tells us that God is supreme and in Jesus Christ he has vanquished all opposition. There is no celestial battle for God is triumph and supreme. However, the old myth of the war in heaven between God and Lucifer remains deep in the collective unconscious. You remember that that was a battle that Lucifer lost and he fell from heaven to earth. And so we can interpret the fall to earth of Lucifer, Satan, to mean that Satan is to be found not as a celestial figure, a rival to God roaming the universe in opposition, but as a symbol for the presence of evil rooted in the human heart. As one commentator has put it, Satan exists because we exist. The foremost exponent of this view is René Girard, the philosopher, and we remember here at Trinity Cathedral that René Girard was much loved by Bishop Nicholas Nisley. And a Girardian perspective holds that Satan is an anthropological, not a metaphysical presence in the world. In other words, Satan is a projection of the hardness and evil that lurks in the human heart, and there is the opposition to God. And time and again in the Gospels, Jesus stands in powerful opposition to the way the tradition of Moses falls captive to the hardness of the human heart. And history shows that if unchecked, even the best traditions and social systems inevitably degrade into instruments of oppression and discrimination. The example from the Gospel today reveals Jesus in this Girardian light. Jesus as a foretaste of the later rabbinic tradition that was to come to flower in the Talmud. Jesus confronts the use of tradition as an instrument for satanic oppression. Satanic oppression being a code for the processes by which traditions look for a scapegoat for the collective inability to project and process our guilt and our fear. I was recently asked to summarize in a sentence. Can you believe a sentence? My understanding of my own priesthood. A sentence. <laughs> so here goes. I believe my ministry is to witness to a personal relationship with God. 
that is lived out in community, where it is forged from within the tensions between the tradition we receive and the challenges of the lives that we live. And I want to talk about the use of this word tradition because we use it interchangeably in two completely different ways. Sometimes we talk about tradition with a small t that simply refers to customs that have grown up over time and that change all the time. And then at other times we refer to tradition as a capital T to refer to something which appears to be set in stone and unchanging. The scriptures, I'm pleased to say, in our Anglican tradition of biblical interpretation, are part of tradition with a capital T. As Anglican Christians, we Episcopalians understand tradition to be referring specifically not to everything that is done, not to all the customs that arise and change over time, but specifically to the church's interpretation of the scriptures and the historic creeds. This tradition with a capital T is handed on from one generation to another. And so how do we relate to that tradition? One of the chief characteristics of being Episcopalian comes from our understanding that God speaks to us from within that place of tension between the tradition handed on and the culture in which we live. We understand Scripture to be subject to the interpretation of tradition. What that means is that it is subject to the developing consensus that represents the mind of the church in in any particular period of time. We also understand that both scripture and tradition are subject to the scrutiny of reason. And like tradition, reason's another one of these words that we don't usually understand. Reason doesn't mean everything that's logical or rational that might occur to us. Reason with a capital R is confined to the expression of the higher universal values of love as justice, liberty as freedom from systems of oppression, Equality as in non-discrimination. These are the higher values of reason. And the scriptures cannot be interpreted in any way that contradicts these values, which are so implicit and central to Christ's preaching in the Gospels. And so, here we are in this place of tension, And it's not an easy place to stay. Our Christian journey forces us to find ways of living lives that are both faithful to tradition 
and authentic to the needs of our time. Yet sitting in this place of tension is what marks Episcopalians out, it seems to me, in the religious terrain, where tradition is seen by some churches as a timeless expression of God's law to be imposed upon culture and by other churches as something to be overturned and discarded as an irrelevant relic of the past. We believe that God communicates through the process of our dynamic interaction with the tradition. Sunday by Sunday, we come here. We hear the tradition spoken to us in the scriptures and we come to relate that to the reality of the lives that we are bringing with us every time we come through the great doors of this cathedral our Christian journey is a journey of discipleship in personal relationship with Christ, lived out and expressed in community. And when we take that understanding and we apply it to the gospel we heard this morning, in fact, I'm reminded about the gospel we heard last week, which finished with the lines, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? I take this as a clear reference to the need to sit in this dynamic tension between the needs of the present time and the wisdom of the tradition that we inherit. And in the gospel this morning, we discover something of a historical paradox. Jesus confronts the leader of the synagogue, whom we can assume to be of the Pharisee party, with an interpretation of the Sabbath tradition that not only humanizes its application, but proclaims God's desire that this tradition be honored in a way that unbinds human beings from satanic, as in hard-hearted scapegoating application. The paradox here lies in the fact that it was the Pharisee party that gets the bad press in the Gospels, but it was the Pharisee party that went on following the destruction of the temple in 70 AD to give birth to rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of the rabbi in the encounter between Toby and the rabbi. As witnessed in this episode of West Wing, the rabbis began to restrict the unmediated application of the Torah through increasingly humanizing interpretation, interpretations later compiled in what we know as the Talmud. And Jesus engages the leader of the synagogue who accuses him of violating the Sabbath by curing the woman. And what we can easily misinterpret often and again when Jesus comes into conflict with the law is that he's in opposition to the law, and yet Jesus is deeply respectful of the law. What he is in opposition to 
is the hard-hearted application of the law. The application of tradition with a capital T. And we can do no better than to follow the example Jesus gives us. To do so is to live our encounter with tradition in such a way that it becomes an instrument for God's continual desire for the reforming of human society. In our hands, let tradition, the tradition that we honor and receive, become an instrument for liberation from the hardness of heart that has characterized so much on the long journey of the children of God. Amen.